how did you start playing the game? Who recognised your talent? Well, I got a, received a tennis racket for Christmas in 1953. And I listened to the Davis Cup Challenge round, which was at Kuyong, Melbourne, in 1953. And that was where Lou Hode and uh, Ken Rose will upset Tony Trabert and Vic Satius, two 19-year-olds. And so I listened to it. It was only on the radio, no TV. And that really got me in- interested in wanting to play tennis. And was, was, there, was there a coach um, who saw you early on? Yeah, well, what, because I'd got this tennis racket, there was an old church tennis court with holes in the net and everything up behind our house. And mum took me up and hit a few balls and uh, I liked it. And then so I started to go down to the local tennis club after school. And there was a lady there who was interested in helping young kids who wanted to play tennis. And she would come along each evening with a big sack of tennis balls and stand the other side of the net. And she didn't have a racket. She'd throw the balls to you because we're only beginners. And uh, so then we would uh, hit these uh, shots. And so she was encouraging us. And every month, one Sunday in the month, a coach from Melbourne would come down. He'd go around this country circuit and do professional coaching. And uh, when he saw me, I signed up for this. And when he saw me play, I think I was nine or 10 or whatever it was, he was quite impressed. And he said to my mum and dad that, uh, that I could be a chance to be a good tennis player, top tennis player. But I'd have to leave this little country town where we lived, Lee and Gather, of 2,000 people because it was only a seasonal game. So you couldn't really make it if you didn't play tennis full time year round. So, so when I was 12, Mum and Dad uh, moved us all down to uh, Melbourne to help me try to make it as a tennis player. Can you describe yourself as a player? Well, I've been tall, 1.85 metres, which was tall in those days. Now it's only the average height for a tennis player. But um, so I was tall, so I had a good serve. And in those days, we only played tennis on grass and onto car, which was a form of... uh, clay court that was in Melbourne and there's no hard court tennis at all so uh, tennis was an aggressive game and playing a lot on grass you you serve volleyed all the time so that was the style of play Uh, so I had it and I was lucky enough to have a big serve and uh, you'd come into the net and volley after your serve and if your opponent stayed back at the baseline well then on his serve then you would hit and come in so the points were much shorter and the style of play was suited to quick points on these fast, low-bouncing grass courts. Your greatest results came from doubles, but you also played a single semi-final at the Australian Open. Yep. Ken Rose will defeat you in four sets. What do you remember about that tournament? Well, it was uh, 1972, and uh, it had some prize money. Up until then, there was very little prize money. Open tennis came in in 1968-69, uh, but the Australian Open was a very poor relation to the other Grand Slams and not a lot of the top players came out to play in it because it was uh, the poor prize money. Anyway, I remember they did have some reasonable prize money this time and I was uh, delighted to get through to the semifinals and uh, I lost to Roswell, as you said, in four sets and, and he went on and uh, won the tournament. But that was the... You know, it was a big thrill and playing in front of my home fans, if you like, because it was at Kuyong where I'm still a member. I've been a member 55 years there, so it was nice to play at your home courts 
in front of your family and friends and uh, play well. I could have probably even got to five sets, but Rosewell was such a legend that you're almost playing the name rather than the, uh, than the, the shots he was hitting. And on the day, I was, when I think back on it, if I'd have been a little bit perhaps uh, tougher mentally on that day, I might have been able to even get a bit closer than four sets. Australia has always had great players and a great tradition in both singles and doubles. Why did Australia have so many great players, uh, especially in your era? Well, it was a very traditional sport, a summer sport in Australia. There's lots of uh, clubs, small clubs dotted all around uh, the metropolitan areas. Uh, a lot of uh, country uh, areas had grass tennis courts. And it was a thing to do that you played tennis, uh, particularly a lot of the great players in Australia in those days came from the country. You'd go down to the club and they would play on the weekend and you'd hang around. And as soon as uh, the players left the court for a little while, you'd get your mate and you'd run on and hit for 10 minutes. Then you'd get kicked off again when another four started to play. You'd hang around and play some more. So that's what you did on the weekend. There wasn't the distractions uh, anything like there were now. There's no screen time, no social media, no phones. And when I first started, there was no TV. So all you did was play outside. And um, so we produced a lot of great athletes in all sports. And uh, tennis was particularly popular, particularly after World War II finished. And we had some players who did really well overseas. Frank Sedgman and Ken McGregor uh, really started the trend, if you like, for all the rest of the players to follow. Sedgman uh, won Wimbledon, I think it was 1952. And he and McGregor won a whole heap of Grand Slam doubles. They won the Davis Cup. And so when you have players doing well internationally, it's a great, um, well, a boost uh, and an enthusiasm for young kids to take up the game. I remember when this coach came and uh, was talking, or when we moved to Melbourne and I had, to, had a coach there, and he said to me, son, he says, you're going pretty well. He says, if you keep this up, you might be able to play at Wimbledon one year or play Davis Cup for Australia. So the coach showed the seeds in your mind that if you worked hard, you might be able to uh, turn out to be a great player. And as I said, there wasn't any other distractions much after school for kids apart from, uh, from playing sport. And you mentioned doubles. One of the reasons we had so many good doubles teams is we, because of the court uh, courts being so popular on the weekend that uh, there's too many people wanting to play and you couldn't play singles. There's only can have a two on a court. Doubles, you could have four on a court. So a lot of the club competitions were doubles. So uh, we learned very quickly about how you play doubles, whereas a lot of the European players who grew, grew up learning on clay courts, which is a baseline game, they didn't really concentrate too much on their net game at all. So... That's one of the reasons, uh, you know, we all did well in doubles. But it was that international success in the early 50s and our players winning Wimbledon and Davis Cup that inspired a huge number of uh, young players uh, to take up the game. And then when Sedgman and McGregor turned professional, then you had players like uh, Neil Fraser and he came along, followed by uh, Mel Anderson and Ashley Cooper. And, of course, before them in 1962... Rod Laver won the first of his uh, Grand Slams. And so we've now started to have success on a regular basis. We kept winning the Davis Cups because Harry Hopman was a famous uh, Davis Cup captain. And he won a heap of Davis Cups, about 15 of them. 
but it was a little easier to win in those days because if you were the title holder, you didn't have to play any of the qualifying rounds. You're automatically in the final in the challenge round for the next year. And the final, the challenge round, was played at your home country. So we would win and then wait for the rest of the tennis world to challenge and then whoever won would come out to play us on fast grass in, uh, in December. So big advantage for us. And so we kept winning all these Davis Cups. And as I said, it's just kept encouraging kids to play tennis. Uh, on the subject of your doubles career, which double success are you most proud of or most fond of? Well, I've won the Australian Open doubles twice. So that was, uh, I was very pleased with that. Uh, US national doubles once. And then um, I got to the final of the doubles and the mixed doubles at Wimbledon in 1975. So to get to two finals in the one year at Wimbledon and uh, play on the centre court. I hadn't played on the centre court there. So that was a bit nerve-wracking for my partner and I. And we didn't play quite as well in the, in the final as we had done in, in uh, the matches leading up to it. But it was a great experience and we were presented at the Royal Box uh, with the Duchess and Duke of Kent to um, receive our um, trophies, etc., and our medallion. So that's something that I'll remember. But the, the biggest two things were to win your own national title. So to win the Australian Open doubles twice... I mean, if you win it once, somebody says, oh, that was pretty good. But if you win it twice, and we were also in the final another time, that meant that you, you, know, you were pretty good at doubles. You were able to combine well with many different doubles partners. Uh, what type of player typically suited you, and what are some memories you have of the various players that you teamed up with? Well, nearly everybody from Australia, as I said, they played a lot of doubles, no good doubles players. So it was easy to uh, mesh in with another fellow Australian. And a good combination was to have a left and right-hander. So I was right-handed and I played a lot of tennis with Ray Ruffles from Sydney, who was left-handed. So um, that gives you a bit of an advantage, I think, to have a lefty-righty combination because uh, it sort of unsettles some of the opponents a bit. They see a different slice serve coming at them. And if, you, uh, if they hit the ball wide, then it's going to go to your forehand, my forehand on the first court and my uh, partner's forehand on the second court. So they found it hard to, you know, you're always, the, that was the weapon of the players, their big forehand. So the, if you were a lefty-righty combination, uh, you know, you always were able to use your big forehand at some stage. Of course, we had a lot of great left-handed, right-handed combinations with Newcomb and Roach were probably one of the best. But as I said, you could pretty much play with anybody. The other thing you needed to do, I was a first court player, which means I played return serve on the juice court. So you needed to play with somebody who was, he was a backhand court player. I was forehand. So you needed someone who was a good returner off the backhand court. So you look for someone who was good off the, uh, the other side where you returned from also. In 1968, tennis became open. You were 23 uh, and at full strength. How did you experience that news? Well, look, it was fantastic. Uh, I was considered, and a few of my mates that I travelled with, we were just below the top level of the great Australian players. So we were uh, considered just below that, that level of play. And uh, Open Tennis came in in 1968, which meant the group of professionals that were touring around playing in pro events, they'd been banned uh, because they were pros and tennis was an amateur game. It was decided to help make the game progress and uh, 
become more popular because it was struggling a little. You had the amateur game, which were all the best players turned pro each year and left it. And the pro circuit was banned, so they weren't allowed to play at the National Association tennis courts. So they were playing in gymnasiums and anywhere they could get their uh, get an arena to stage their events. Uh, so both games were struggling a little bit. So in 1968, the international tennis body decided that finally they should call open tennis and there'd be prize money in the events. There'd be no expense money paid uh, and there'd be no um, guarantees for pros, big contracts to turn pro. So they put prize money in and you got what you won. You got whatever round you reached, that was the prize money you got. And so that was an incentive for, the, as I said, the, the second string Australians, if you like, for us to train a bit harder and stay in the game because it now meant no guarantees, no expenses. So all the top players, they didn't get any more than you if they lost the same round in the tournament. So it gave us encouragement uh, to work hard and train hard. And uh, we got the rewards by earning money in, the, uh, in these tournaments. On the subject of singles, uh, you, you managed to achieve a ranking of 38. When you played, what were the main differences between someone ranked around that level and a top five, top ten player? So a player like Laver, who you were able to take sets from but not matches, what, what did those extra special players like him have that made them so great? Well, I think they had a great belief in their ability that they never really doubted themselves. And when you were, say, my level, 38 I got to, and I spent a lot of my time ranked around 50 to 60 in the world, it was hard to get down to that top 20. I mean, we could play well enough on a given day to beat some of the top players, which I beat quite a lot of the top 10 ranked players, but then to back it up and go on and win the tournament, you had to have that little bit extra to do that. And these top players were able to do that week in and week out. They also had great games, a lot of natural ability, but for someone like myself, I might be able to cause a couple of upsets and have a great win. And you'd come down the other side of the mountain after you've had your uh, big win over the top seed. And then to get back up the next day, that was routine for those players. But for me and others around my ranking, it was difficult to be able to maintain that level right throughout the tournament. And they did it week in, week out. So consistently able to produce that top level all the time. And a lot of them, you thought you had them some days, but they, they didn't panic. They were they expected to win really if they were playing someone ranked 40 or 50 in the world. So if they were struggling, they didn't panic. They still just kept working on their shots and, uh, uh, they, and they were very tough mentally, those guys. You know? They didn't give it away or give you the match. You had to actually win it. You did have singles wins over some formidable opponents, including Arthur Ashe, Roy Emerson, Stan Smith, Ily Nastasi and Yannick Noah. Do you have one singles match that you feel is your greatest win in singles? Well, when I, I beat Nastasi, uh, Ily Nastasi, when he was number one in the world in, uh, I think it was 1972 or 73. And uh, so that was pretty good to beat him when he was number one in the world. And I beat another player who just won the French Open, Jan Kodas from Czechoslovakia. And uh, so I played him couple of weeks after he'd won the French Open on clay and beat him on clay in Sweden, which was, uh, so that's a couple of good wins. But as I was saying, for me then to follow up after beating two players who'd been uh, French Open champion and world number one, you'd 
played so well and it was such a high and euphoric moment, then the next day you've got to come out and be able to play as well again to, to continue in the tournament. I found that a little bit hard. And if I'd have been a little bit, I don't know, a bit more self-belief, I probably would have been gone on and won some more of those, uh, of those big matches. You played Italy's own Adriano Panatta twice and beat him both times in 1969 in Naples in the first round, 6-love, 6-3. Gee, he must have been sick that day. <laughs> and the first round of the, the US Open in 1973, this time in five sets. What do you remember of those two matches? Well, to be honest, I forget the one. I forgot the one in, uh, in Naples in 1969. Perhaps he was a bit younger then and was just, just on his way up because he was a great clay quarter and that was on clay. And he went on, I'm pretty sure I from memory that he won the French. And uh, it was a terrific Davis Cup player, a very flamboyant, good looking guy. I mean, he had the women chasing him everywhere. And um, the, the win I had over him at the US Open, he was seeded, I think 14 or 15. And he could play well on grass, but like a lot of the European players, he hadn't grown up on it. So it wasn't his favorite surface. And he didn't like to serve volley all the time. And you've got some irregular bounces and stuff like that. So I was very pleased to beat him over the five sets because it's always nice to uh, defeat a seeded player in one of the majors. You played, uh, you played in Rome four times. Not so much luck in the singles, but in doubles, you made the final in 68 with Nicholas Caligaropoulos losing yep. to Walker and Reeson, and you also made the semi-finals with Creeley. What memories do you have of, of that tournament and of, uh, of Rome? Well, Rome was just a fantastic tournament. The 4-0 Italico was the name of the, uh, the club, the stadium, and the main centre court there had had these lovely marble statues all around it, and it was a sort of a sunken court, and you felt really uh, important playing in there as if you are in the Colosseum. And uh, unless you were playing an Italian player, and that was very difficult because the crowds used to uh, uh, give you a bit of a hard time or try to influence the umpires. They were very vocal. So you, you didn't want to draw a good Italian player in Italy. And since then, they've built a bigger stadium that seats a lot more than the, that original centre court did. And that's called the Pietrangeli Stadium. It's named after Nicola Pietrangeli, who has been the greatest ever player. I think he won... Oh, he might have won the French three times, just a magician he was on the tennis court. But the doubles, the year I got to put the final with Nicky Caligaropoulos, or he was called Nicky Kalo for short, uh, I played with Marty Reeson in, in some of the tournaments. You mentioned Naples. We played at Naples and Reggio and Catania and Palermo on the Italian circuit leading up to uh, the Italian Open. And um, Marty's regular partner, Tom Ocker, didn't play the circuit leading up to the uh, Open. So I didn't have a partner in that particular time. So Nicky and I teamed up together and we got through to the final and we really beat some good pairs and top-seeded teams. The problem was when we got to the final, the Nicky Kolo from Greece, the Greek king was living in Rome in exile. So now when he sees Nicky Kalo and I in the final, he's going to come out and watch. So he comes out and he's sitting in the front row and Nicky cannot play. He's so nervous that the king... I said, but it doesn't matter. He's not anymore. He's in exile. You know, don't worry about it. But he just got too nervous and couldn't play. And he played so well throughout the tournament. We get to the final and he, he couldn't play his best. But uh, that was a great thrill because 
in those days, the three biggest clay court tournaments in the world were the French, the Italian, and the German. And everybody wanted to do well in those three. They, they were ranked, in fact, the Italian was regarded as the fifth best tournament in the world after the, the four Grand Slams. You were, during this same period, you became captain and player of a world team tennis team, the Indiana Loves. Many people say that world tennis was quite a wild ride. What are some of the strongest memories you have of those times and some of the struggles to get that league up and running? Well, it lasted about four or five years and it cost a lot of money to get it up and running because to get the top players to leave the circuit for three months in the middle of the summer, they had to miss uh, the French Open and the Italian Open. And so it cost the league owners. These franchises uh, were bought by wealthy businessmen in various cities. And you had an East and a West division like you do in uh, most other pro sports in America. And the crowds were encouraged to cheer and barrack like they do in other sports. So they got a bit abusive, the home crowds, and they'd be stamping their feet uh, on the, uh, up in the seats and banging seats and trying to put you off. And you're about to serve and someone would shout out double fault and all these sort of things. So it, was, it got a bit uh, noisy and a bit hectic. And they used to heckle some of the players. So you were, if you won away in team tennis, it was... Uh, a good win, but you had five five sets of tennis each night. You'd had a men's singles, a ladies' singles, men's doubles, ladies' doubles, and you finished with a mixed doubles. And it was no ad scoring, so whoever won the next point after Juice won the game, and you added up the games that uh, you won. And that got very exciting because sometimes you'd get to and it would be 22 games all, and then they played a super tie break to determine who wins the night. And the coach was able to do substitutes. So if your player you thought was playing like a dog and was losing too easily, you could take him off and put another of your team on. So there was a bit of strategy involved about whether you should make a substitution or not. And the other amazing thing about it was they wanted it to be different. So there was no lines. The courts were segmented in colours. Um, so it lasted four years and it was good fun. But it was hard to... As I said, for the owners, they didn't have a national TV contract. And that's what you need in sports in America. You need to be on TV to get the, the, big, uh, the big dollars and the advertising and stuff like that. And so it was costs of putting a team onto the field, uh, onto the, into the stadium course. We played indoors everywhere, at, either at uh, basketball stadiums or ice hockey rinks. The cost of uh, putting on the uh, matches each year was just too high. And finally, that's form of team tennis folded, Billy Jean King took over the running of it and she kept it going for many years on a, a simpler basis and uh, still going it to this day and it's now proving quite successful. It was very interesting and uh, you've got some, a lot of players played it because they were paid reasonably good money and uh, I was happy to be the coach at Indiana because you've got extra dough if you're the coach. You had uh, Vetus Gerolitis was one of your players in, in Indiana. How was it having him on the team? Uh, well, look, he was a real character, Vetus. He didn't like Indiana at all because it was, uh, for him, he was a New York boy and uh, Manhattan and Long Island and all that stuff. And uh, so he didn't like playing in Hicksville, he thought it was, uh, to come out to a farming community like Indiana and Indianapolis. 
And so uh, he asked for a super, super huge amount of money, which they agreed to. And he thought this was pretty good. And his sister played. So he said, look, how about uh, putting the sister on the team? So uh, he got her on the team as well. And she got some money. But he was a terrific player. But he, he didn't have his heart in it. He was only playing it because of the money. And uh, he actually won the Italian Open at that time, which was one of his biggest uh, wins because he was a, a great player on, from the back of the court, really quick. I remember one particular story. We, we had uh, practice at 10 o'clock each morning down at uh, some outdoor courts at a club near where we were staying. We all had apartments. And this particular day, 10 o'clock, we're all there to practice and Vetus isn't there. And I'm wondering why he's not there. And I get a phone call from him about half past 10 saying he can't make the practice. And I say, well, I'm a bit surprised you're late. You've only got to come 10 minutes in your car from the apartment. So I said, how, how come you can't make it? He says, well, I'm actually in New York. So I said, well, what are you doing there? He says, well, after our match finished two nights ago, he says, I flew out back to, uh, back to New York. He loves Studio 54, uh, the nightclub. He was party boy, Vetus. And he says, but uh, I missed my flight. And so I'm ringing up to tell you, that, sorry about that, coach, but I won't be there. So then the thought dawned on me, this is near the end of the season. I said, how many times did you do that where you flew back to New York in between matches? He says, oh, I don't know, maybe half a dozen. <laughs> so he was a real character, Vetus, but he was, a, he was a terrific player. I remember another story about him. We were given these cars by a uh, car company in India, Indianapolis, not to keep, but a, a courtesy car that had Indy under loves on the door and your name. Anyway, they were Subarus, and Vetus didn't think too much of Subarus. He was a car collector, and he had Rolls, Rolls Royces, and uh, Mercedes and things like that. So he was given this uh, Subaru and he didn't like it anyway. We're going to Wimbledon and he uh, drove up to the airport, gave the valet parking the keys and the guy says, we'll look after it for you. And uh, that's fine. So Vetus comes back from Wimbledon. About four or five days later, someone rings up and says, we've found this car with Vetus Gerolaitis' name in the car park. Do you know anything about it? And we said, oh, yeah, that's his car. And, but he, he just left it there. Since playing, you've done a lot of commentary, especially in Australia. You've covered the Australian Open 43 times in a row as a broadcaster. That must be some sort of record. Could you have imagined 43 years ago what the Australian Open has become now? Yes, look, it is amazing. This year, it'll be my 44th year. And um, I still get just as much pleasure out of it as I did in the early days. Although in the early days... You only covered the centre court. There was no coverage. Uh, it was a small coverage and they had about four cameras. You had a high camera at the top of the stadium, one on the concourse, and then a couple on one of the service line-up uh, each side of the court. And that was it. So a lot of all these great matches might have been going on the outside course, but at that, that stage there was no coverage of that. And there were just three of us commentating, two hosts, and I was the special co comments man. So I had to sit there and do every match. They alternated as the uh, host, but I did seven hours a day, every day. The other thing about it, in those days, they had the thing called seven summer of tennis. So there was uh, six weeks of uh, tennis without a day off. And I commentated on every single day without a miss. I'm very proud of what we achieved there because tennis was struggling. 
to get you to keep the popularity and get good players to come out. It was uh, losing participation. Not as many kids were playing. We weren't doing quite as well then overseas. And so the game was suffering. So tennis, Channel 7, who did it, took a big chance deciding to televise seven weeks or six weeks of tennis in a row every day. And uh, eventually, after a couple of years, it became popular and people would turn the TV on at 11 o'clock at home and leave it on all day. They wouldn't sit there for seven hours. That They'd come in and out and watch it. And it really helped to um, promote tennis again and increase its popularity. And in doing so, more sponsors then came on board and put in, started to put in more money. So the tournament started to uh, grow and get more prize money. And uh, then the men and women got back together and had combined events. And that's when uh, the Australian Open became as important as the rest of the uh, Grand Slams. Now, of course, there's cameras on every single court and uh, it's televised. Hundreds of millions of people around the world watch the Australian Open. And so I've enjoyed it. It's still great to be involved after uh, all these years. Well, tennis has certainly changed a lot over the years. How do, how do you feel about the current era of players and the, the game today? Is the game in good hands? Well, I think it is. The style of play is... Uh, I preferred our style of play. I mean, the game has got now so strong and powerful that it's really a power-hitting game. Um, the rackets are so light and strong. The courts, you only really play... The grass courts at Wimbledon is the only time really for grass, so that's sort of gone out of the play, so it's homogenised. If you watch tennis, you'll see the players hit these tremendous shots from the back of the court, side to side with two-handed backhands and heavy topspin, and they hit it so hard, it's hard to find a way for a net player to get to the net because the ball is coming so fast at him at the baseline, he's struggling to get it back, or if he gets it back, he's standing behind the baseline. So the net game has gone out of it to a great degree, which I'm disappointed in because it's nothing better than seeing a good net player come in and, you know, play a couple of volleys and then angle away and overhead. So you get a nice contrast. But, but the players, that's the style of play now. And the players playing, they're great at it. I mean, you, the men's game is in great shape when you've got the guys at the top, such great role models, particularly Federer and Nadal. Djokovic is uh, a terrific player, maybe not quite as popular as, uh, as the big two. But those guys have been around, Andy Murray. I mean, there's a whole lot of them at the top that have really inspired many, many kids to uh, take up tennis. And the women's game, um, the depth there is uh, really improving as well. The women are now much better coached. They're better athletes. Their technique is better. And you see a lot of these good rising young stars coming up now in the women's game as well, which is terrific. I mean, the girl, 19-year-old, who just won the French, Iga Sviantek, terrific. You hardly would have heard of her. I commentated on one of her matches last year. She got to the round of 16 at the French. And I thought, gee, this girl's going to be something. Then I didn't hear from her for a while and she didn't do that well. But she was able to then come out and produce an effort like she did this year at the French where she... Didn't lose a set. Then we've got Ash Barty here, who's number one in the world, who doesn't have the power of these other girls. And she is a bit like an old-style player that we like. You've got a lovely slice backhand when she needs it. She can volley. It's got a great overhead. And then you've got Naomi Osaka, the Japanese player. who grew up in America and played all the tennis there. 
but she's an intriguing sort of girl with uh, plays all these wonderful shots and uh, she's a bit of a breath of fresh air and she's now taking an active role off court. So the game's in good shape really because uh, it's very popular everywhere around the world because of the prize money now so big. All the countries, the kids want to play tennis because there's an opportunity to really make something of yourself which wasn't there when it was an amateur game, say, in the 60s. So it's just a tremendous change all around in tennis as far as the styles of play, the different court surfaces, the rackets, prize money, the opportunities for the top players. Serena Williams and um, Ash Barty and Osaka, they've made about $50 million each this year. So that's a sort of phenomenal amount. So women tennis players win by far the most amount of prize money or rewarded in any of the women's sports. And uh, I think it's in pretty good hands. What did your career in tennis teach you about life? Uh, well, it taught me that there's no uh, easy handout, you know, to, to sport. If you play sport for a living, you could say, oh, it's not fair. I was unlucky to lose that match. I should have won or I got a bad call or whatever. There's no handouts in professional sport. You, it's brutal. And so it taught me a little bit of resilience to try to overcome perhaps some lows in your career when things aren't going that well it's easy to get despondent and want to give it away but uh it, it, so it teaches your perseverance and resilience and to be able to deal with the you know the highs and lows in sport and uh and the same and the same in life i think i've been able to keep a pretty even keel i think with my career once tennis finished i was able to do tv did some coaching um, so I hadn't, didn't have to do much in the business world, which is lucky because I didn't know anything about it. But um, also, I think when you meet so many people and travel around, uh, you learn how to, the ability to get on with people. You know, I think that's very important. You have to respect all the people that you meet in life and treat them well. And uh, then you, it comes back to you. And uh, I think that's... That's, that's what I've been pleased about with my career. And of course, you know, I've got a lovely wife and two great kids and the grandkids. So I think uh, being a tennis player and having my whole life involved in tennis, is, I think I've been pretty lucky and uh, I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to have changed it. Well, thanks, Alan, from all your friends at Tennis Pro History. Thanks, Dave. <laughs>